Well, good morning. Glad to have you with us uh, this morning. If you're here in person or if you are worshiping with us online, very grateful uh, to have you uh, with us in this space at this time as we uh, gather together to remind each other of who God is and who we are and what God is calling us to. Uh, if you're a regular part of Crossroads, if you're a Crossroadian as we like to be known. Uh, it's just good to be with you. It's good to worship alongside you. It's good to be with family, uh, as Rachel's mentioning uh, earlier. But if you're a guest with us this morning, maybe this is even your first Sunday uh, with us, I uh, hope that you feel more like family when you leave than when you came in this morning. We're certainly glad that you're here with us. I'll be up here in the front right after the service, so if you want to connect with me and, and just meet, uh, I'd love to meet you and hear a little bit of your story and where God has brought you. So uh, I invite you to spend a little bit of time this morning and come up and we can chat a little bit. But we're in the middle of a teaching series that we're calling Made New. It's a teaching series that we're going through the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians is in the Newer Testament book, uh, Newer Testament of the Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, want to kind of start marking your way there to to Ephesians will be in Ephesians chapter 3. But the Apostle Paul wrote a letter uh, that was now put into the Bible, the letter to the churches in Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians. It's going to these people in the region here. And he writes this letter to remind them of their identity in Jesus, their primary identity as followers of Jesus and how that identity gives shape to everything else that they do in their life. Everything else that happens in their life comes out of their identity as followers of Jesus, that they've been saved by grace through faith. And this is not of themselves. This is the work of God in their life. And that that identity shapes everything that makes them new, makes them a new creation, makes them a new people. And this is what we're going, we've been looking at the last few weeks. And this morning we're going to look at this purpose of God to bring unity to these diverse groups of people, that he is bringing people together and the ramifications that Paul says that that will have in our life, uh, that as we follow Jesus, that, that we, we bring this identity of of following him or him as our Lord, as our King, and how that gives shape to our life. We're going to get there in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. But I also recognize that we come from all sorts of things happening in our life and our world. Things that are happening uh, that happened this morning, things that are going to happen this afternoon, things that are happening this week, things this past week that you've come out of. And that can all those things on our to-do, on our schedule, on our, on our calendar can be uh, distracting to us. When we come to worship, we come to a time to study specifically what God is teaching us through the Scripture. Sometimes our mind can be preoccupied with either things that have happened this week or things that are going to happen this coming week. And so before we dive into the Scripture this morning, I just want to give us about 10 or 12 seconds to just simply calm your soul a little bit. Take a couple deep breaths to settle in a little bit, and maybe you would pray a prayer that says something like this, that God, would you speak to me today? That I want to hear from you today. So we're just going to take about 15, 12 to 15 seconds and just quiet your soul a second to just listen. And perhaps the Spirit of God may stir in you in a way and teach you or remind you of something this morning that you need to hear. And then I'll, I'll read the passage after that. So let's take 12 seconds.
All right, so Ephesians chapter 3. Again, if you have a Bible with you or an app or a phone, you can do that or you can follow along on the screens behind me and on the sides here. So Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13 with us this morning. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, you will, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made, to, made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in to see what God would teach us through this passage. God, we are grateful for your presence and your mercy in our life. I pray that you would teach, mold, and shape us by the revealing of your word to us, that we are humbly submitting to you today and your authority in our life. Shape and mold us to be your people, testifying to your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul uses and describes this phrase, this mystery of Christ, to describe the purposes of God that have now been revealed by the Spirit of God to God's apostles and prophets. To, and this mystery or this purpose is to bring unity specifically between the Jew and the Gentile. That, that together, the Jews and the Gentiles are now one family, are brought together in one accord. They are brought together in one family. Jesus is the head or the lead of this new family or this new bond, but this Jew and Gentile, which once were isolated by each other, at, at odds with each other actually, are now unified. And this is God's plan from the very beginning. This is his mystery that's been revealed through the Spirit of God to his apostles and prophets through the ministry of God's Spirit to bring unity to God's people, both Jew and Gentile. If you're taking notes in the journals that you have with you, you may want to pay attention to verse 6 in this passage or circle it in your Bible if you need to. But verse 6 reads this way. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. In other words, God's plan, this mysterious plan that he purposed from the beginning and brought to fruition in Christ Jesus was to make a people who will together demonstrate the vastness of God's love for others. 
It is by the way in which we love one another. Though we are different, though they are Jew and they are Gentile, the way in which they love each other, that would testify to the world and to the principalities and the authorities in the heavenly realms of the grandness and the greatness of God's love that can unify two at-odds people are brought together in one new unified body. Paul says that unity or oneness in the body is this mystery that has been revealed, this mystery that was not revealed before, but now in Christ something new is happening, this new oneness, this unity is being done that is superseding any cultural preferences or cultural norms. This is a theme, by the way, that Paul talks about over and over again. If you were here in our study in chapter 1, you will remember that his purpose, Paul says that God's purpose is in Christ to bring unity and peace to all of God's people under the leadership or the headship of Jesus. Paul will write about it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, nor slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one new family, one new body. So this is a theme. This is something that the Apostle Paul teaches on fairly often. But in the ancient culture, in the ancient world, this would have been revolutionary to talk about oneness with different people groups that are being brought together in one that supersedes their cultural norms and preferences. This would have been radical. It would have been revolutionary to talk about, especially as it relates to religious understanding. For in the ancient world, if you were to worship the God of that world, part of the world. It was very tribal worship, which means if you wanted to worship the Egyptian gods, for instance, Ra and the others, if you wanted to worship, then you had to become Egyptian and to adopt the cultural norms of the Egyptian life. If you wanted to do that with Rome or with Greek, then there was the, the cultural norms that were going on with the worship of their gods. It meant to adopting their cultural heritage. It meant becoming into their culture. And truthfully, Israel fell into the same kind of pattern. They believed at that time that in order to worship the one true living God, Yahweh, the creator of all things, you had to also become Jewish, which meant you had to adopt all the festivals and all the food practices, the circumcision, and all the things that went with becoming Jewish. In order to demonstrate your devotion to Yahweh, the one true living God, it was meant that you had to culturally become Jewish. It was assumed that anybody could worship God. Anybody could come and worship Yahweh. But in order to worship Yahweh, you had to first adopt the Jewish culture first, and then you could be acceptable by God. But what Paul is teaching, what he's writing, and what Jesus prays for in John 17 is that that is no longer the case. It's no longer necessary, in other words, for us to adopt the cultural preferences and the cultural norms of the Jewish culture in order to be co-heirs or partners or involved or adopted into this new family. For God is making a new family, a new creation, a new place that supersedes culture. The devotion to Jesus is what brings unity, not cultural preferences. And while there certainly will be things of our culture that we need to take off, there's certainly aspects of our culture that we'll need to 
say no to in order to pursue the life with Christ, especially in our context in 2023 in America. There are aspects of the American culture that we will have to put off and say no to because they're in contrast to the ways of the kingdom. So that's absolutely true. But what Paul is saying and what Jesus is praying for in John 17 is that there is a unity in the body of Christ, not because that we adhere to the same cultural preferences or cultural norms, but because of our devotion and our common love for Jesus. That is our primary identity, not our nationality or our political leanings, but our, our primary identity as followers of Jesus. And that takes precedence. And that wasn't happening all throughout the ancient world. And candidly, it doesn't really happen now all that often either. Because people are so easily divided by cultural preferences, by political affiliations, by economic status, among all sorts of other things. People are divided among all these things. And yet the church of Jesus, and here I'm not just speaking about crossroads, I'm speaking about the church of Jesus, the, the global movement of followers of Jesus, are to be unified, not because of our cultural preferences or about how we vote or about how we listen to music or whatever other things that might divide us, but because of our devotion to Jesus, that that would be the primary defining notion of who we are is not the secondary things, but because of Jesus. But sadly, when the church mirrors the culture, when the church mirrors the fighting and the bickering on the secondary issues, when the church finds itself fighting and bickering and splitting off because of secondary issues, then we have lost our witness to the God who loves all people, all of his people. We have lost our witness to the world that, declared, that we can declare that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We have lost our witness that as Paul would say in Ephesians, that this God who loved us while we were dead in our sins and transgression, he still loved us and came to us. When the church mirrors the culture of bickering and fighting and splitting on secondary issues, then we lose our witness to the love of God that loves us and unifies under the leadership of Christ. Biblical scholar D.A. Carson's on the more reformed tradition, but in his book, Love in Hard Places, he wrote these strong words, and I think that there's a lot of truth to them. He writes this, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. We are called to this oneness in Christ because we recognize the immeasurable amount of God's love for us, His grace for us. So we are not 
together because we have common everything else, but because we've been loved by Jesus. That I've been loved by Jesus and you have been loved by Jesus and I've met the unmeasurable grace of Jesus and you have met the unmeasurable grace of Jesus and that is our primary identity. And everything else is secondary. Everything else falls in line under that headship, that leadership, that kingship of Jesus. And so the oneness that Paul describes in Ephesians and that Jesus prays for in John 17 and other places, it has a level of significance. It has a level of of weight. It has a level of importance. And we need to take this seriously. We need to take this call for oneness and unity in the body of Christ seriously and, and have some significant importance to it. This message that Jew and Gentile are now brother and sister in Christ is recognized this is the reason that Paul's in prison and he's writing this letter from prison because he has been teaching that Jew and Gentile are a part of a body that supersedes culture and that Jesus is the head of it. And this is the reason And Paul's gospel, the message that Jesus or Paul is preaching is one of the reasons he's put into prison because he feels the significance of this issue. Because the Roman government doesn't like this unity. And even the religious leaders of Paul's day don't like this unity. And yet Paul has received the grace of God. And he understands the mystery of God to bring unity to the body of Christ. So this is an area where we can and we must grow. We must grow as the church And again, not just speaking about crossroads, but as the church, we need to grow in this area. So as I talk about this oneness, I want to just lay out two kind of ground rules as we talk about it, and then we'll share some stuff later. First and foremost, just kind of groundwork here, I'm talking about unity in the church. right? I'm not talking about unity or oneness with people who do not recognize the divinity of Jesus or that he is the son of God. There are some substantial differences and we ought not just look at, well, someone's got faith in that God and the God of this and that, and we're just all one big happy spiritual family. No, I'm speaking about oneness in the church, oneness with people who claim Jesus as the Son of God and recognize his death and resurrection. So the, the oneness that Paul is speaking about is people who agree on the majors of faith the divinity of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, the nature of the Trinity. Now, we might, while we might disagree on the secondary issues, food practices and style of worship and other things, we hold fast to the majors of our faith. And while living at peace with other people of other faiths, of other uh, uh, philosophies, while that's a good thing and that we ought to learn to live at peace and love other people, specifically what Paul is speaking about and what I'd like to address is unity in the body of Christ among believers in Jesus. And what does that look like for us? So that's the first ground, ground floor stuff. Second kind of foundation is that Christian unity, and I've already alluded to this, but Christian unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we always agree, and it always doesn't mean that we always look the same. But we are bound together in unity. We should expect to have differences. We should see it all the way through. 
And if we're being honest, Orthodox Christians from all history past have not always agreed on even theological issues. Some of the secondary theological issues, the manifestation of gifts and how that looks and how often they should be used. Understanding of the end times. What's the whole point in it? What, what's going to happen? What's going to happen first and second? What's all going to look like? The difference between free will and predestination. How we understand communion and what is happening in the communion elements and how you should take it, how often you should take it. We've not always agreed on secondary theological issues. We've not always agreed on cultural issues, secondary cultural issues. The kind of music that would be good in the church. The kind of worship style. The way in which you should dress. Is it okay to dance in the church or is it not okay? Alcohol consumption. We have not always agreed on these kinds of things. We have differences and we ought to expect that we will see differences. But the priority of oneness in the church is greater than any of those differences. And it leads me to see you and each one of us as brother and sister in Christ. And I just think we need to be challenged on this on a regular basis because we can easily slide into hold on to these secondary issues and it breaks down unity, oneness in the body of Christ, in the church. It breaks down oneness and we find ourselves bickering and arguing, fighting and splintering off all the while. So this morning in just a few moments I have left I want to highlight for you three reasons why oneness or unity is significant and we ought to pursue it. It's not just a nice add-on to our life. It's not just a nice thing to make our life better on the outside, but it is central to the gospel of Jesus. The unity in the body of Christ with believers in Jesus, oneness in the body is central to Jesus' message and it is central to the mission of the church. It is not just a nice add-on thing, a nice luxury item that we can do with or without. It is central. And there are three reasons I want to give you why I think it is central. And the first one is because Jesus desires it. Jesus desires it. This mystery that Paul says has been revealed by the Spirit of God to the prophets and to the apostles here is that oneness is a oneness that God has desired all along, that Jew and Gentile would come together to make a new family. If you would look back, and if you're taking notes, you may want to write this one down, but if you look back on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, then you will notice that Jesus he says that he destroys the barrier of hostility between the two groups, making one new family where there was two, he's making now one. This is God's desire from the very beginning to make one new people under his leadership and under his kingship. Again, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that God is bringing unity and peace to all things under the leadership or the headship of Christ. I've already mentioned John 17, but it is what he prays for in John 17 when he prays, I pray that they, not just the disciples here, but the disciples to come, meaning us, that they would be one, Father, as you and I are one, that they would be one, and that their oneness would be a demonstration that Jesus is God's Son. And I can end it right here. We can stop the sermon right here. We can go on for lunch for the rest of this stuff. Because Jesus desires unity should be enough reason in itself that we pursue unity. Because Jesus desires it, it's his purpose that ought to be enough for us. If we are devoted to following Jesus, 
then if he desires something, that ought to end it for all of us. That ought to end all the conversation and we pursue it right away. So I could end, but I won't because I got two more for you. Got two more. See, there are things that sometimes we wonder, what does God want from me? What's God's will for me? Is it God's will for me to go to school here, to marry this person, or to move here? And I'm struggling. I'm not sure what God's... There's all these discernment that is needed to find out what God's will is. And then there are some things that there is no question about. And this is one of those things. There's no question about God's desire for oneness, unity in the church for those that are devoted to Jesus. So Jesus desires this. Second reason I'll give you, and that is that unity displays God's glory. Unity, oneness in the church displays God's glory. Jesus says that oneness or unity in the church, in this John 17 passage I keep referring to, he says that this would be the evidence of God's glory. By this unity, people will know that Jesus is the Son of God. Now it stands to to me, it seems to reason to me that God could do whatever he wants to do to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. He could do whatever he wants to make it evident that he is God's Son. And yet the way in which God's glory is revealed, the way in which people will come to know the divinity and the power and the grace of Jesus is when they see the oneness of God's people in the church on display. People from different walks of life, people from different ethnic status or ethnic uh, backgrounds, people from all sorts of different stuff that be brought together and the selflessness, the humility, the other-centeredness, the loving one another would be a testimony to a watching world about the glory of God. And that would be how people know that there's something different about Jesus. Jesus got this, by the way. Jesus modeled this for us. For when he was a small group leader and he gathered these 12 men around him to be his little small group, he didn't choose people that all got along. He didn't choose people that were all from the same background. He didn't choose people from all the same education background. In Jesus' small group, there was a guy named Simon the Zealot who literally thought that faithfulness to Jesus, faithfulness to the ways of God, would mean a revolutionary, rebellious overflow of the Roman government. That's what they felt. The, the zealous group meant that they thought that faithfulness to Jesus meant that we were going to rebel and we were going to rebel against the Roman government, to kick them out with power. So in Jesus' small group, you have Simon the Zealot who wants to overthrow the Roman government. And sitting right next to him is Matthew, a tax collector, who literally is working for the Roman government. In Jesus' small group, you have two people who at least are on opposite ends of the political spectrum. At least, if not worse than that. And I have to think that their devotion to Jesus changed their politics, changed their view of each other, changed their desire to see goodness in one another, changed their arrogance and their pride. Oneness in the body of Jesus or body of Christ in the midst of differences, some stark differences, some radical differences, but oneness anyway displays the glory of God because only God can bring warring, hostile people together at the same table 
to enjoy fellowship in that way. Only something as powerful as the love of Jesus can take polarized opposite people together and in humility love and serve and care one another. And so if the church, the church of Jesus, not just our church, but if the church is going to be a church that's devoted to Jesus, then we are going to learn to grow in this area of oneness and unity. We're going to have to let go of our secondary issues. And it will take work because there are real differences. There are real differences in preferences. There are real differences in understanding. But our love and our devotion for Jesus is our primary identity. And we're going to have to learn to let go of our secondary identities and look past those differences and to learn to self-sacrificially love and care and forgive our brothers and sisters. And when we learn to do that in increasing measure, then we will be a testimony on display for the glory of God. And I think that sometimes because we live in America and we live in such a rugged individualistic kind of a place, we think testimony as an individual's story. But whole communities can have a testimony too. What we are known for as a community has a testimony too. And what is the church is to be known for is our devotion to Jesus and our unity with brothers and sisters of different ethnic background, different cultural background, different political preferences, different everything else. But our devotion to Jesus is the glory of God on display. And I just want you to know, as the pastor here, I have a desire to continually see our local expression of the global church of Jesus as a place of diversity, ethnically diverse, socioeconomically diverse, politically diverse, educationally diverse, generationally diverse. Why? Because that kind of diversity but unity displays the glory of God and is a testimony to our world around us. And I want to be a part of that. But there's a third reason I want to give you, and that is that pursuing this oneness is a means of transformation. Again, if you're taking notes, Luke chapter 9, verse 23 is one you want to pay attention to. Because in Luke, 20, in Luke 9, 23, Jesus tells us that if we are going to be his followers, then there will be times when we need to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. In other words, Christian unity forces us to put to death aspects of our character, aspects of our heart that are not Christ-like, that we were to put those to death. It necessitates a putting to death arrogance and pride that assumes that my preferences and my cultural upbringing and my opinions are always right and yours are always inferior to mine. It necessitates a put to death the arrogance and the pride that leads me that way. It necessitates a putting to death anger and grudge holding where I learn to forgive. I learn to walk with you. I have to realize that I have allowed secondary issues to become primary issues. I've allowed my arrogance and my pride to replace humility and other centeredness and Jesus teaches that I need to put that to death, deny that. 
pursuing biblical unity or oneness would always lead me to empathetic listening, that I would see others and desire to hear them, that would move me towards forgiveness and mercy and kindness and gentleness with my brother and my sister. And certainly this will not all happen at once. Certainly it will take time and grace is required and grace is God's activity in my life to do for me what I could not or would not do on my own. But we are God's ongoing project of conforming to the image of Christ and for that we need God's grace. But the goal is still conformity to the image of Christ because the image of Christ and living in the image of Christ is the heavenly life that we were created for. Biblical unity and oneness is not a nice add-on that you could take it or leave it. Makes your life a little bit nicer and spices things up a little bit. But biblical unity and oneness is at the very heart of God. It is His desire. It displays His glory. And it will transform us even ever so slightly into the image of Jesus. To be the kind of people who will eternally be ready to walk into the heavenly kingdom where there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping our great God, devoted to him, where all the differences will be secondary and tertiary at best, and devotion to Christ is primary. And we become that kind of person now when we prioritize unity and oneness in the body of Christ. Body of Christ. Paul ends this section of Ephesians, Ephesians 3, uh, starting in verse 14, and then finishes it with this marvelous prayer for the church and a prayer for us as well. He prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts more and more and that we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge and that we would be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Why? So that his glory would be on display and we would live into this oneness with brother and sister from all walks of life, from all cultural backgrounds, from all differences, made one because of our devotion, because we have been loved by Jesus. And we love him. And everything else falls into place. Christ makes unity and oneness possible. And we will experience that as we learn to follow him more deeply. Let me pray for us as we continue. God, we are just grateful, humbled, and amazed by your grace and mercy. I pray that you would teach us of your heart. That you would forgive us of times we've held on to our preferences and we have fell to arguing and bickering rather than oneness and unity. Pray for humility in our life, and I pray that you would teach us to be your people, that we would put your glory on display, and that through it all you would transform us into your likeness, that we would be at home in your kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.